0: great to see you. You know, this is the first time I've seen you without masks for about a year, what, 15 months? It's, it's like awesome long overdue, and it's just great to be. But you know, it's great to be back. Last couple of weeks, I've been uh, out of town parts of the week, not the whole week. We, uh, Someone in my life group was getting married in Mexico, and so we went down there to do that that uh, wedding down there. And then last weekend, I had uh, an uncle who had passed away back in uh, uh, into December, but they'd held off holding a big celebration for his life, uh, kind of memorial last weekend. So I was down in Oceanside for that. But it's, it's great to be back, and uh, it was just awesome, and those two weeks I was gone just to listen to Tim and to Dre teach, it was beautiful. Uh, you know, I you know, last weekend I was uh, live on uh, kind of live streaming the service uh, on Sunday morning from a Starbucks and uh, <laughs> And it was just you know I, I texted uh, Dre part because I was doing it at the nine o'clock I texted him part way through just said what an awesome job he was doing with the with the message and I what I told him is it's so awesome we have like three weeks in a row three different teachers at Rocky Peak and three weeks the word is being unpacked in a beautiful way amen and uh, I just I just love that we want to be a church it's about the word it's not about a personality right it's about what is God saying and so just a great. Great. So thankful for those those guys. Also, uh, quick, uh, this, I, I want to show this for those of you who are parents. I know uh, Rachel uh, mentioned uh, VBS, uh, but uh, I, I want to uh, put my little two cents in here. You know, we, we live in a time of unprecedented challenge for raising our kids. And, and as parents, uh, parents, you, are, you have primary responsibility before the Lord to raise your kids for him. And Uh, I'm telling you, if I had a child, and I do have grandchildren, we're making sure this, but if I had a child, I would not be missing this. I don't care what I have to do to get them there. Because really what this is, is kind of like a camp for kids. In the midst of our culture right now, what our kids are facing in schools, like as parents, we need to be really on the ball shepherding them. And this is going to be, you're going to be seeing some new initiatives coming in the future as we come alongside to equip you as parents to do that. But I would say, you know, this is not just a, hey, that'd be a great week for my kids or I don't have my kids. This needs to be a high priority if there's any possible way for you to get your kids here because we need, while they're young, to be putting the truth of God into their lives. Amen? And so I just want to encourage you if you're on the the fence for that. And then finally, uh, obviously today is uh, July 4th and we're celebrating the birth of our nation. Uh, I don't know about you, but I'm incredibly thankful for being a part of this nation. I'm also incredibly concerned with the directions we're headed as a nation. And, and I really believe unless God just sends some spiritual revival uh, to our nation, we're, we're in for some very tough times. Uh, we're a nation that's very far from God right now. You see it every day, constantly in the news. And, and the church of Jesus needs to be rising up and being a light in a dark place and covering our nation in prayer because only by a work of God will this thing be turned around, amen? amen. And so I'm gonna ask you as we get ready today to go into our time of teaching, if you would stand with me. I, I wanna lead us as a church in prayer for our nation. Um, and then we'll also cover this service in prayer uh, before we come. So if you would just join with me as we go before the Lord. So Father, we come to you in the name of King Jesus. The only way that we can come through his life and his death and resurrection as your word says It's He is the mediator. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. And so we come not based on our righteousness or not based on our performance. We come in the righteousness of Christ, Lord, and we beseech you on behalf of our nation Lord, we are so thankful for the gift of this nation, the way you've blessed us for, the, for the, the founding fathers, for the principles this nation was founded on. And though we've not always lived up to them, Lord, it was a beautiful, kind of a beautiful vision. And so Father, we pray that today, we, we pray for the future of our nation. God, we come before you as, as your church and we pray that first of all, God, you would grant repentance to our nation. We wanna stand uh, as followers of Jesus in the midst of this culture and cry out for your mercy and your grace. God, we see what's going on, a, cult, a country and a culture far from you and going farther with every day. And God, we, we believe that only by a supernatural move of your spirit can this be turned around. And so Lord, we, get, we, we gather with other believers uh, in this nation who today are beseeching you for the future. We pray like Daniel prayed for fallen Israel. We pray like Nehemiah prayed for his people. God, that you would forgive the sins of our land. Father, we pray it would start with us as the church of Jesus. You'd forgive us for our mediocrity, for our compromise, for those times when we have not been a light in a dark place. We pray that you would revive our ch- the church, Lord you revive our church here at Rocky Peak. you revive all churches across this land that the message of Jesus, that the light in a dark place would go out and that it would lead to a mighty revival. God, you would turn the hearts of this nation back to you. And so God, we pray on this day, Lord, as we look back and celebrate that declaration of independence, we, we thank you. We thank you for the principles on which this nation was formed. We pray that they would be lived out, that we would truly be one nation under God. Amen. And We pray, God, that you would pour out your repentance, and then, because of that repentance, Lord, that you'd pour out your blessing once again. Amen. And so, Father, as we come before you today as your church, as we get ready now to unpack your word, what you would say to us, we pray you'd speak to us in Jesus' name by the power of your spirit. And everyone said, Amen. 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 Well, our story starts today on a very early in the morning. It's a weekday in this capital city, and in the far east, the the mountains, uh, the, the sunlight is just beginning to peak over the hills. She's in bed with her lover and she spent the night with. And as they lay there in bed together, just waking up to the new day, they can see the sunlight just beginning to break through the shutters in their dark room. And that's when it happened. That's when the nightmare began. All she remembers is that it started with a huge crash as the front door was kicked in. Before she knew what was happening, there were men in her room. She was terrified. And from that moment on, it was a blur. She's not really sure how she got out of bed, how she got dressed. Some of her first vivid memories are being ushered out of her house, then rudely escorted down the narrow, windy streets of the city that for the most part was still asleep. She was so confused. What were they doing? Why were they doing this? Where were they taking her? Until all of a sudden they turned that final corner and she looked up and she saw that bridge in the distance. Now, all of a sudden, she knew. She knew exactly what they were doing. And she knew exactly where they were going. And the fear began to rise in her chest. The terror lodged in her throat. Well, today, we are continuing a series that we've been in forever. Uh, <laughs> that's called Signs, The Path to Life. And for those of you who are brand new, uh, welcome. I'm not sure I mentioned at the top, my is Michael, I'm one of the pastors here. And in this series, it's an in-depth look at the life of Jesus. as seen through the eyes of one of his closest followers and friends, a man that we know as John, or uh, the Apostle John. And if you've been with us in the last couple of weeks, as Tim and Dre have just done such a great job of unpacking the word that we've been in chapter seven and we've watched as Jesus has traveled once again from the north of the country, from the Galilee where he's grown up, where he's done most of his ministry, that he's traveled with his men south for one of the three great annual pilgrim feasts, the Feast of Tabernacles. It happens every fall, about, usually about October. In about six months, he will be arrested and executed, but we haven't got there yet. And as he's been teaching this week at the Feast of Tabernacles, once again, he's been making some epic claims about who he is and why he's come. And as a result, uh, the crowd is divided. They're not sure what to think about him, but the leaders are out to get it. In fact, if you were here last week, you saw that at one point they've even sent the temple police to go and arrest it, but they've returned empty-handed saying, no one has ever spoken the way this man has spoken. And so today we come to the end of chapter seven and the start of chapter eight and to one of the most famous events in the life of Jesus. And so if you have your Bibles, you have your apps, I'd like you to open up, kind of turn those on, turn to the end of John chapter seven. There in your note sheet, you have a section called Signs the Charges. Now, as we get ready to jump in, I want you to notice there's an important note uh, right before this passage. This is a very interesting passage. So uh, this, uh, this note in the New International Version, uh, if, you, if you're using a different version, that the note may be in a different place. It, it may be in the margin, it may be in the footnotes, it may be in the Texas here. But the, the translators of the New International Version are telling us something very important about this, this passage, that we're, this event we're about to read. And so I put it there on your note sheet just in case you don't have the NIV so we could all be reading it together. So here's what it says. Uh, it says, the earliest manuscripts, the earliest Greek manuscripts in other ancient witnesses. This would be like uh, other uh, ancient translations from Greek into other languages. That they don't have this passage from 753 to 811. In other words, if you look at the, the oldest manuscripts we have of the Gospel of John, it would jump remember, there was no verses and chapters in those days so it would jump from 752 to 812 this this event that we're about to read would not have been there now it says a few of the uh, manuscripts do include these verses either wholly or in part but they'll they'll include them either earlier in John John chapter 7 after verse 36 or at the end of John's gospel in the last chapter, John 21, 25, or actually some include him in Luke, either in Luke 21 or in Luke 24. So the question is, what what does this mean? What are they telling us? Well, it's really interesting because uh, sometimes when you're talking with someone who's maybe not yet a follower of Jesus so they, uh, or, or they don't believe in the Bible, one of the things that they will often say is that you can't really trust the Bible. It was written a long time ago and it's changed over time. Have you, any of you ever heard that, that kind of thing? But the, the reality is the opposite is true. The reality is, is that we have hundreds and thousands of manuscripts of, uh, of Scripture, uh, especially in the New Testament, uh, and, and that uh, way more than any other ancient document. And so the reality is, through a science we call textual criticism, that we're able to know with great reliability that what is written in our Bibles is actually what was originally written. But every once in a while, you come there. There is a longer passage. I think of two places in, in uh, specifically. Here's one in John. And the other is at the end of Mark chapter 16, the longer version uh, at the end of Mark. There's a couple places where there are longer passages that are not in the original manuscript, the earliest manuscripts. And so what we believe happened is that uh, at somewhere along the line, a scribe or a group of scribes decided, hey, this is some authentic information about Jesus. This would be a good place to add it in, right? So what we believe is that this passage, though genuine, Uh, most scholars would agree that it really reflects a genuine event in the life of Jesus. But what we're saying, they're saying is that it wasn't, that John didn't include it when he wrote it here. So the, the thing to take away from this, I think, is first of all, notice how honest the translators are. That, that this is like, when something like this happens, they tell you right away, hey, we're not sure about this passage. The earliest manuscripts we have don't have it, which would suggest John didn't write this. We're not sure, they're, they're telling you the history of this. So the reality is when it comes to the New Testament, manuscripts, we have so many manuscripts and, uh, and so much scholarship there, there's probably 97, 98% we're sure that what we're actually reading uh, is there, but every once in a while there's something, and often it's just a word change or a, a phrase or something that they have to figure out through textual criticism, but a couple times there are longer passages and this is one of them. But the beautiful thing is, I'm so thankful this this, uh, passage is here because it gives us great insight into who Jesus was, uh, 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 how he relates to us, why he came, and kind of the path to life. And so with that as an intro, let's go ahead and we're going to read it. I got to jump through this. And so uh, at the end, in verse 53, it says, then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. So the, the scene is the city of Jerusalem. We know from the other gospels that <clears throat> the last week of his life that Jesus would teach in the temple every day, and then he would go and camp out on the Mount of Olives, either camping out there under the stars. Remember, it's a, a, this is like a festival time, uh, or, uh, or, or maybe staying with his good friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, who lived in the town of Bethany, which is on the Mount of Olives. So, so, this, was no, so that's, this is the scene. The scene is still Jerusalem. And, uh, and so Jesus is, is going every day teaching in the temple and then going home in the evening to Mount of Olives. So at dawn the next day, so Jesus, Jesus is a morning person. I, 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 <laughs> uh, no, just anyway. Uh, so at dawn, <laughs> some of you need to start following Jesus. No, just kidding, just kidding. Just kidding. My, my wife is not here, fortunately. <laughs> She's an evening person. Uh, so at dawn, so, so I want you to know that this scene is going to happen at dawn. Uh, okay? it's, it's the start of day. So this makes sense. So, so very early in the morning, Jesus is going to get up and go to the temple courts. This makes sense because people have to work during the day. This is a great time for them to come and get some teaching before they, they move on with their day. And so at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts and all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. So this was a traditional posture of a rabbi. You would sit when you taught. And so all of a sudden, I want you to picture this there. It's, it's early morning, right? The sun's coming up in the east uh, over, the, over the, just into the city. Uh, people are all sitting around there, fairly large crowd sitting. Uh, Jesus, is, Jesus is there sitting. They may be standing or whatever, listening to him teach. And all of a sudden, there's a ruckus in the distance. And as everyone looks up in the distance, they see this kind of crowd of uh, this group of religious leaders, coming towards Jesus. And you wanna like, what's going on? And the closer they get, you can see that they're, they're bringing a woman, kind of a bedraggled woman with them, right? Um, and so this, this takes us back to the story we started the day with. We started the day with a story of this woman who spent the night with her lover. It's early in the morning, as the sun is just starting to break through the shutters on their windows. When all of a sudden there's a loud crash, the door is kicked down, she's taken out of bed and she's kind of escorted through the city. And it's not until that final turn that she realizes where they're going, that they're heading for the bridge that leads over to Temple Mount. And uh, she has gotta be in terror. We, we know at this time from history that for the most part, there were not public stonings or executions in Israel. Israel was under the authority of Rome, and Rome allowed them to, to a large degree, run their old, own affairs, but they, the Jewish leaders did not have the right of capital punishment. This is why when Jesus was arrested, you remember he was taken to Pilate? Remember? Because they they wanted him crucified, but they didn't have that authority. Now sometimes though, mob violence would break out. So for example, do you remember just a couple years after this and the movement of Jesus is underway, the first Christian martyr was a man named Stephen. And you remember that that was mob violence that broke out and they stoned him. They didn't have the political right to do that, but it just, it, things got out of hand. These were very high charged, you know, like the Middle East today. You think of the allowed religious passion there. And so these, they look up and they see in the distance as Jesus is seeing that people can like see this, this group of religious leaders coming. And uh, apparently they've, they've gotten this woman out of bed or it's, it's very early morning. And what they're gonna claim is they've caught her in the very act of adultery. Now, if you stop and think about that, that's not easy to do. Which sounds like this whole thing is a setup. And on top of that, there's no man. And last I checked, adultery is a sin with two people, right? And and yet contrary to the law of Moses, which, which hold both parties accountable, that they're only bringing this woman. So something is off from this. And what we're going to see is that they're bringing this woman to Jesus to see what he says should be done with her. We caught her red-handed in the very act. They're going to say the law of Moses, and this is true, the law of Moses requires that we execute this woman by stoning. And this is true. In the Old Testament, and all these references are there. You know, cheap if you want to check it out and keep me honest. But uh, in the Old Testament, we're told if a woman is engaged to be married to a man, uh, she's betrothed, and she has sex with another man, both of them are to be stoned. If she's a married woman and she has sex with someone other than her husband, both the man and the woman are to be executed. Doesn't say how, just they're to be executed, right? So, so they're going to they're gonna bring this case to Jesus. And what we're going to see is they don't care what he thinks. They're not bringing it with a sincere heart, like, what do, you, like how, what do you think we should do? What they're trying to do, as we'll see, is trap him so they can bring an accusation against him. They say, well, what do you mean? Like what, do you, like, what would they accuse him? Well, if he says, no, let her go, and he offers her forgiveness, they can accuse him of being light on the law. You you are a false prophet. You're not upholding the law of Moses, and they can undercut his incredible popularity with the crowd. But if he says, execute her, and especially if this leads to mob violence, this can get him in trouble with Rome because they don't have the authority to to, to be pronouncing a sentence. So what we're gonna see is they don't care which way he goes, they are laying a trap trying to get him, all right? So let's see what happens. So at dawn in verse two, he appeared again at the temple. The people are gathered around him, perhaps standing. He's sitting down to teach him. And all of a sudden in the distance, you see the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they brought a woman caught in adultery. And so they make her stand in in the group. And so they, they, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. They're gonna make her stand in front of the, kind of put her in the circle, stand in the group. And this woman has got to be terrified, humiliated, scared for her life. And uh, they made her stand be, uh, before the group. And they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, it commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? But notice they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for it. They didn't really care. It didn't matter which way he went. Remember when they came to him and said, hey, uh, should we pay taxes to Caesar? In their minds, it didn't matter which way he went, he was a goner. They they thought they had him. And so at this point, Jesus is gonna do something really interesting. They're gonna ask him a question and he is going to totally ignore them. (laughs) Any of you have children? Uh. (laughs) You know this experience, right? And he does something really strange. He he gets down and he starts like drawing in the dirt. Now, of course, the million dollar question is what is he writing? And as you can imagine, there are all kinds of creative theories throughout the last 2,000 years of what he was writing. But the reality is they're all speculation. We have no idea what he was writing. But here's what we do know that first of all, he's creating dramatic tension. (laughs) Can you imagine being in the crowd? They bring this thing, everyone's like, whoa, what's he gonna say? I mean, everyone's leaning in. And and he's just like, hmm. And it's interesting, because in the text, it says they kept on questioning him. In the Greek, it's in the present tense, which means that, They didn't just ask him once and then just watched him draw in the dirt. They they continued, like, well, well, what do you say? What do you say? What do you say? What's the law say? so, he's just kind of ignoring, And so, the crowd is getting tense. The leaders are getting frustrated. They have set this perfect, can you imagine how much time they spent? How can we get him? I know, let's catch a woman in the act. We know this prostitute. Well, this guy will go along, this very well may have been a setup, and then we'll ask him this, and then, and then he'll be stuck, either way. And so, they have they, this perfect, they hate him. They're trying to get him, and, and he's just not cooperating. <laughs> he's just drawing in the dirt. And so, finally, he's going to stand up. So, in the middle of verse six, he, he bent down. He starts to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he finally straightened up and he said, okay, here's, here's what I would say. Let anyone of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone. <laughs> You're just going to let them think about that. Now, the question is, what does he mean but, but if there's any of you without sin? We're not really sure. He could be saying what seems obvious on the surface that, hey, each of you needs to search your own heart. You, you're, you're harsh. You've, you've gone. You pulled this woman out of bed. You, you've, you brought her here you know what I teach about sin and sin of the heart, and I've been accusing you of this. And so he may just be appealing to their conscience, hey, look within, have some mercy. But the problem with that is that if we know anything about the religious leaders, they're not really prone to self-examination. They're not really prone to like, oh, you're right, we are proud. You know, they're really prone to self-righteousness. They they really believe they've got it all together, and so would that really work with them, you know? So a second way of looking at this is that that Jesus is really challenging the legal procedure. This is like a courtroom scene. We we don't see it like this, but the temple is where cases are judged. They, They bring this woman caught in the very act. They bring him to a rabbi. They're asking for a legal judgment, but they're, the witnesses have not come forward yet. And the Old Testament, at least at one place in the law, it says that when you, when you carry out capital punishment, the, there has to be at least two, two eyewitnesses. That, that hasn't happened, that we've seen this scene. Um, and on top of that, it says that both the woman and the man are to be executed. Where's the man? So it may be that Jesus is challenging their legal basis here. You guys are accusing her on the law, but you're breaking the law. And we don't really know for sure. But what we do know is he has just put them over a barrel. Because remember, they're they're trying to get him to either say, have mercy on her, which makes him look like he's soft on the law and lose credibility with the crowd. Or to say, stone her, which will get him in trouble with with Rome now he's just flipped the tables on them and said you decide um if you are without sin you start let let the you you be the one that start with with, with throws the first stone and on this he was on strong legal grounds because in the old testament it says that when you execute someone the witnesses have to start the stoning was very intentional so that people would prevent people from just making uh, like loose charges. Like, no, no, you can't just make a charge and then go away. You've got to actually start the execution. And So what he's done is he's flipped the tables and said, all right, hey, you all decide if you think you're without sin, but then you start it. Well, this is the last thing they want. The last thing they want is have to make the judgment themselves publicly. And the last thing they want to do is start the execution. And so he's completely flipped the tables. And guess what? It's the oldest men in the crowd who realize first they've been outmaneuvered. Either they're the most experienced men, either because of their conscience, if that's the issue, or because they just realize, hey, this is going south and I don't want to be a part of this failed scene. And I'm just going to slowly back away. <laughs> and, just, and so that's exactly what happens. And so in verse 9, at this, those who heard began to go away. Remember, he's still writing on the ground. He's down still writing. He's not even looking. And those who heard began to go away at one at a time, the older ones first, until finally there's only like one guy left there. And he's like, hey, where did everyone go? Uh, I need to leave. And uh, remember, this is like a courtroom scene. And so now, after everyone goes, Jesus stands up and looks at this woman who's got to be terrified. What's going to happen? And Jesus straightened up, uh, and he asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Remember, this is a courtroom scene. They've brought the, accused, they're the prosecutors, they've come to the judge. Now the judge stands up and the courtroom is empty. The prosecutors have left. And he says, where are those who condemn you? And she says, well, there there are none. And so as the judge, he says, neither do I condemn you. He offers her incredible grace. She's caught red handed, the law system, but he, he offers her incredible grace. But notice he doesn't leave it there because he goes on and he says, then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now, and what's he say next? Leave Leave your your life of sin. Because if she's gonna move into the new life that God has for her, she not only needs God's grace, but she needs to listen and follow the truth and leave her life of sin, right? So powerful passage. What I want to do today is just highlight one big picture principle that flows out of this for our lives of who Jesus is, uh, who God is, kind of the path to life for us, and then come back at the end and ask one important question. And so there in your note sheet, you have a section called signs, the twin cables, So here's the principle. In this passage we've just read, in this event, that Jesus reveals both grace and truth. As we watch this scene unfold, as he says to this woman, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. We're we're watching Jesus reveal kind of the grace and truth of God, the God that he's come to reveal. So I don't know if you remember this, but when we started this series, which was was what, like six months ago. Some of you weren't even here then. Uh, That when we started this series, that we spent the first three weeks doing a deep dive in the intro to this gospel, because the intro is so important. And what I share with you is in this intro, John is introducing Jesus to us. But he's also kind of summarizing some of the most important principles that Jesus taught about who he is, why he's come, and the path to life. And so you remember how John introduces Jesus to us with his epic claims about who Jesus is. Remember this? He starts his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And... Through him, all things were made. Without him, not one thing was made that has been made. He introduces Jesus as the creator God. But then, later on in verse 14, he, he makes a startling claim, we talked about early in the series, that there was a specific time, a specific place in human history where this Word who was God, the Creator God, entered into time and space to reveal Himself and to rescue us and give us life. And I put it there in your note sheet, verse 14 from chapter 1, he says, the Word, you know, the Word that was with God and was God, the Creator God, the Word became flesh. He became human, and He made His dwelling amongst you. Remember remember, we said that this was the word tabernacle? He tabernacled amongst us. So in the same way that God came to live with Israel in the, the special tent, the tabernacle in the wilderness, uh, that, that God came in Jesus to tabernacle with us. And remember when the tabernacle, when God filled the tabernacle with His presence in Exodus 40, the glory of God filled it. And in the same way, when Jesus came in tabernacle, the glory of God was revealed. And so John says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. And he says, and he was full of two things. What's he say? Grace Grace and truth. He was full of grace and truth. In fact, twice in this intro, We'll, we'll see, I'll refer to the, the other time later. Twice in this intro, John says, if, if I only had two words to describe Jesus and this glory of God that Jesus revealed, if I only had two words, my two words would be grace and truth. Grace, this incredible love of God, this compassion of God, this mercy of God that doesn't care where we came from or what we've done, has come to offer us new life, not based on our performance, but based on on his love and on the death of Christ. This grace of God and then this truth, this truth as he'll say later in John chapter eight, this truth that sets us free. Sometimes it's a a tough truth, sometimes it's a tender truth, but it's always truth that leads to life. And John says, if I had to summarize Jesus for you, and what we saw the glory of God revealed in Jesus, I would choose these two words, grace and truth. Now, here's what's interesting. Throughout this gospel, we've seen Jesus operating in grace and truth, haven't we? For example, one of my favorite examples is with the the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well back in John 4. Uh, And do you remember when when Jesus uh, met this woman, he introduces himself, he pursues her for uh, a relationship, and we're told she has a very checkered past. But in spite of that past, Jesus pursues her to offer her this gift of living water, this new life, it would satisfy the deepest thirst of her heart, right? So he offers, in spite of her past, her checkered sexual past, he offers her grace. But you remember the moment she said, yes, I want it, he said, okay, go get your husband. Do you remember that? And she tried to evade the issue by saying, I don't have a husband. And then Jesus very gently forced her to face the truth. When he said, Well, what you've said is true, but it's not the whole truth. Yeah. That you've actually had five husbands and the man you're currently living with, your boyfriend, he's not your husband. That he forces her to embrace the truth about her life. Why? Because without truth, we can never be set free. Amen. Well, until we face the truth about who we are and what we've done and what's going on, we can never move into the freedom God has for us. In fact, we can never really receive his grace because deep inside, we tend to feel if we, the reason he's given grace is because we, we have, he doesn't know what's going on. But Jesus always offers his grace But he requires us to face the truth. It's not grace or truth, it's grace and truth. And that's what we see in this passage today, this beautiful passage. We see, once again, Jesus' tenderness with this woman. Don't you love how he defends her from these self-righteous, hateful, religious men? Don't you love how he sends them all away how he humiliates them. So he can just go one-on-one with this woman who's there in fear and shame, humiliation. And he offers her grace. Neither do I condemn you. Now here's the thing. She was caught red-handed. And according to the law of Moses, she did not deserve to live. and. And yet he offered her grace. It reminds me of something else John told us back in the intro. I think it's in verse 17. He said, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We see that here. We see the law says you deserve to die. But Jesus offers grace to her. And he says, neither do I condemn you. But he doesn't simply offer grace. He offers a truth that will set her free. And the the grace is, neither do I condemn you. The truth is, you need to leave your life of sin and move into the future God has for you. You cannot hold on to the darkness and move into the light that God has. It's not grace or truth, It's grace and truth. Yes. And so it leads to a key question in our life. And the question I have for you is at this point in your life, whether you're walking with Jesus now for a long time, you're a brand new believer, or you're not yet a follower of Jesus, the question is, which do you need more, grace or truth? At this point in your life, as you sit here today, which do you need more? Do you you need to be reminded of God's grace? Do you need to hear Jesus speaking over your life, neither do I condemn you? Or do you need to hear Jesus speaking over your life truth? You need to leave your life of sin. Which at this point in your life, I, I believe that at different times in our life, that we need to hear different things. Um, We we need both of these, but at different times we need different things. And we all have sort of a natural tendency, I think, to lean one side or the other. But the question is, at this point in your life, which do you need to hear? And which part, not not only for your own life, but for the way you relate to others in community, in the community of Jesus, or even outside in the world. so let me give you an example in my own life. We, we all we, we all, need to, all need to hear different things at different times. Uh, I was born a Pharisee. Okay? I was born to the house of the yearlies, of the tribe of... <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny, my, uh, I, when, I, when I was young, uh, I was born with a love for truth. I was brought up in a Christian home, uh, had a love for the word, and uh, had a strong sense of the need to live a righteous life, if you'd say. There's a story that uh, my mom tells. It's gone down in yearly family lore. <laughs> that when I was in kindergarten, this will illustrate what I, what I mean. I was born a Pharisee. That uh, when, I was, uh, when I was in kindergarten, it was the last day of kindergarten, and my mom came to pick me up, and the teacher said, hey, I gotta, pull you, I gotta tell you something Michael said. This is really funny. And... Um, And she said, well, what was it? And uh, she said, well, he came up to me today and he said, Mrs. So-and-so, and and this was a quote, up to and including this day, (laughs) five years old, up to and including this day, I have not done one thing wrong in your classroom. (laughs) And then the teacher said, you know what? I stopped and thought about it. He was right. Born a Pharisee. (laughs) Philippians 3, Paul says, you know, before he met Jesus, according to the righteousness of the law, blameless. And then I grew up. (laughs) And I came into middle school, in high school. And I began to discover what the New Testament describes our fallen sin nature, our flesh. I discovered in myself this magnetic pull to the dark side. And I found that no matter how much I tried to listen and follow, I just failed. I, I couldn't seem to, to beat the anger in my life. I couldn't beat the sexual temptation in my life. I couldn't blame, uh, beat the spiritual doubts in my life. And though I'd pray and though I'd even fast and though I'd seek the word and memorize scripture, I found myself just failing time and time again. I was a very intense kid. So I went through like six years of dark years until it brought me to a place of darkness and depression and desperation. I could not live the Christian life. I could not be who the Bible called me to be. It was really, at times, suicidal. And it brought me to a place of incredible brokenness. The realizing that, that in, like Paul says in Romans 7, in me that is my flesh, there is no good thing. Like I can't do this. And it brought me to a place of brokenness and helplessness. And at that point, God began to move in my life in a very powerful way and I began to learn about grace. This love that God had that wasn't based on my performance. It was based on on his love and his grace in Christ. And not just a grace to be forgiven, but the grace that would empower me through the supernatural work of his Holy Spirit, not through my own self-effort, to be transformed and changed by his power and not mine. You know, this morning we were singing this song, uh, uh, the second song, it's called Whole Heart. And I was thinking about this message, and I don't know if you caught the lyrics, but towards the end of the song, it says, once I was broken, but you loved my whole heart through. Sin has no hold on me, because your grace holds me now. And so I I moved from, from one time in my life, being more of just a truth person, to coming to a place of experiencing God's grace. And that is never left. It's not, it's not truth or grace. It's truth and grace. We need them both if we're going to walk well with God. You know, when I was a kid, uh, we would often go to Yosemite. It still is one of my favorite places to go today. And uh, you know, one of the most famous hikes at Yosemite is Half Dome. Yeah. And I know some of you have, have made that climb. And it's a pretty strenuous climb. If you've never made it, it's pretty strenuous. I mean, it's like a 16, 17 mile round trip. And the toughest part is that the, as you get to the very end of the hike, you have to kind of climb up the back of this granite the granite, you know, face that's that's half dome in the front. You have to climb up in the back. And it's really quite steep. Um, And because of that, about 100 years ago, they put in uh, twin cables so that you could hold on to them, right? And I want to show you a picture of what it looks like. These are from my friends Neil and Lynn Johnson who have hiked this many times. But... uh, I don't know if you can see, but it looks kind of like a, like ants in the middle of the picture. That, that's what it looks like as you're approaching the final face. let's go on to the next, next slide. This is what it looks like going up, right? um, And of course, it's better than what it looks like coming down, right? <laughs> the next slide, uh, here's another, one, another picture going up the final, final ascent. And then the next picture, this is what it looks like if you're looking down. How many wanna sign up? We're gonna do all church hike next week, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Half Dome or bus. Um, now notice how there's two, two cables and notice how that person in the foreground is holding on for dear life. Now, this is a good thing because since 1995, 12 people have died because they let go of the cables. In fact, the most recent was just a couple years ago, a 29-year-old woman plunged to her death because apparently, we don't know for sure, but she she let go of one of the cables. Now, what I wanna do is, is fix this in your mind as we walk with, as we follow Jesus, we've got these twin cables of grace and truth. And to walk well, we need to hold on to both. Not just one, not just one, neither do I condemn you. Not just the other, go and sin no more. We need to hold on to both if we're going to walk well and move into the future God has for us. And like I said, I think we we naturally each have a natural tendency to hold on to one or the other. And sometimes what our need will change over time, just like, like mine did. So for example, let me give you some examples. For some of you, you may have started off with your relationship with Jesus very different than mine. You didn't grow up in a Christian home. Maybe you lived on the wild side. When you came to Jesus, there was a tremendous sense of his grace because you knew there was nothing in you to, to cl- had a claim on him. You knew there was only because of his love and compassion. You were more like the woman in this story where he says, neither do I condemn you. And when you heard those words, you came to Jesus, you found forgiveness in Christ you found that he doesn't care where you're coming from, he cares where you're going, and you just embrace this, this grace of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit came in your life, and you began to grow, and you began to be transformed, and it was just joyous. But you know, sometimes over time, we can let go of that cable of grace, and we just start holding on to truth, and we start basing our relationship with God on our performance. Uh, and that, that we need to do this, and we need to do that, and, and we stop trusting him for what he's supernaturally doing, we just, we just kind of take both hands and start trying to pull ourselves up on this thing called truth. We, we start taking responsibility for our growth, primary responsibility, as if God said, well, here is the grace, but now you're on your own. And all of a sudden, we can wake up one day, and the Christian life has just become this burden where we feel much like I did at a certain point. It's overwhelming. I just can't do this. And it's all on us. And sometimes if we do this long enough, we can even get to the place where we become like one of the religious leaders. We become very self-righteous if we feel like we're doing a good job of pulling ourselves up. And we become a very harsh believer in Jesus. And we're not a safe place for people around us. We say things like, I can't believe anyone would do that. We say things like, how could anyone do that? How could anyone call them a Christian? Or even out in culture, how could anyone be so lame? And we become this very harsh, self-righteous Christian, much like these religious leaders, because we've let go of grace and we're just holding on to that truth, pulling ourselves up. Uh, On the other hand though, sometimes we can let go of the truth piece. And we, we come to Jesus and we receive that grace, but then we just keep holding on to grace and we let go of truth. And, and we just, we let sin go rampant in our life. And it doesn't even bother us anymore. We just, we just kind of sit and we just keep claiming, well, I'm saved by grace, it doesn't matter. And we begin to kind of embrace what the famous German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he calls cheap grace. It's grace without repentance. It's grace without righteousness. You'll run into believers like this sometimes who will just be living in high-handed sin, with sexual sin, or drinking sin, or drug sin, or whatever the thing is, that they're like, well that's fine because we're saved by grace. It's like they've heard Jesus say, neither do I condemn you, but they're rejecting the grace I mean, the truth, go and sin no more. And so the question is, at this point in your life, what do you need? You know, I always have a, a burden for those of you, those of you here at Rocky Peak that, that we have just gone through so much in our life, either what we've done or what's been done to us. So we always kind of feel like second-class citizen. We, we always struggle. Maybe you just have a very sensitive conscience. We, we struggle with this feeling of condemnation in our life. And it's not because we're not loving Jesus or trying to follow him, it's just, maybe it's ongoing, we, a sin we can't overcome, or maybe it's because of our past. You know, maybe it's the abortions we've had Maybe it's because of our sexual promiscuity. Maybe it's because of that we were the, the victim of sexual violence. And it's just something about us that makes us feel unworthy. And we just so much need to hear Jesus send away all those accusers in your mind and to say, neither do I condemn you. And there's others of us that, we have just forgotten that we are saved. Like Jesus was so clear that if you want to embrace the light, you have to leave the darkness. Amen. Do you remember what he said back in John chapter three where John said that this is the message that, that God so loved the world that he gave his son so he could be forgiven? Yes, he says, but, but light has come into the world and many will not receive it because they love darkness because their deeds were evil. And so they will be condemned, not because God doesn't love them, but because they refuse to turn from the darkness. And so are there any of us here that we're living in high-handed sin and even telling others it's fine because I'm under grace and we've let go of the cable of truth and we're in deep danger. What do you need to hear at this point in your life? You know, there on your note sheet, I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. He was writing to a friend who is confiding in him his ongoing struggle with overcoming the anger in his life. And Lewis speaks this word of grace. He says, I know all about the despair of overcoming chronic temptation. But he said, you know, no amount of falls will really undo us if we keep picking ourselves up each time. We shall, of course, be very muddy and tattered children by the time we reach home. But the bathrooms are all ready. The towels are put out. The clean clothes are in the airing cupboard. The only fatal thing is to lose one's temper and give up. It's when we notice the dirt that God is most present in us. It's the very sign of his presence. Neither do I condemn you. God is with you. Don't give up the fight. He will lead you, will guide you, will teach you. On the other side, the apostle John was concerned with those in churches he was shepherding that were holding on to grace but letting go of truth. And so he writes in his letter of 1 John, he says, this is the message we've heard from him, from, from Jesus. And we declare to you, God is light. Right? He's all that's right and true and good. God is light. In him there's no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not live out the truth, Grace and truth, it's not grace or truth, it's grace and truth. And as we hold on those twin cables, we will continue to make our ascent, he will continue to meet us, we will grow, we will thrive, We'll become the people you created to be. We let go of either cable or in deep danger. Amen? Amen. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. So, Father, we thank you for this beautiful truth of your word that you have come to set us free and give us life. And for that to happen, we need to embrace both your grace and truth. We need to hear your, your word over our lives. Neither do I condemn you. And then we need to listen to your message and follow. Now, leave your life of sin. And so, Lord, we pray that whatever message it is, we need to hear from you, that you would speak that loud and clear today, that we can continue to move into the life that you have for us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.